Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why saying, I attempted to conspire but was disappointed in both the quantity and quality of the conspiracy on offer, is a heroically brave defense and one we should all employ more often. I'm Frank Spring, joined as ever by Ellie Jacobs, who is today celebrating his birthday in the traditional naval fashion of drinking a full keg of grog and getting keelhauled. Hello, Ellie, and happy birthday, shipmate. Hey, Frank, and thank you for the good wishes. Uh, I hope I do our Court of Discovery justice. Uh, as always, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative. Uh, it seems like they were uh, definitely mixed last week. Good content, poor quality. We're working on poor audio quality. We're working on that. Uh, and I urge it's the every- heady mix you've come to love from Taking Ship. Yeah. Those are two great tastes that taste great together. Yeah, that, that, that sounds about right. Uh, it's sort of like gin and juice, you know, <laughs> each on their own, maybe not so great, or fantastic together, phenomenal. <laughs> yes, Taking Chip, the gin and juice of podcasts yeah. uh, I urge everyone to subscribe and rate us on iTunes And follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship And that's P, at ship with a P as in persuasive uh, Ratings really do matter So please take a few seconds, give us a few stars And obviously leave us a review as well And as always, if you have time to tweet You have time to leave a review And don't tweet your review, actually leave it on iTunes Although we appreciate the good, the good, the good tidings on Twitter as well in a couple yes. moments, we'll be joined by our good friend and fellow Truman Project member, Alexandra Mice. Xander is an international lawyer who prevents and resolves cross-border and cross-cultural disputes. She has experience on five continents. We will open up a, I don't know, poll on Twitter to guess which one she has not worked on. Which uh, of the habitable continents has Alexandra Mice not worked on? Yeah. Stay tuned to find out. Or perhaps not. Maybe we'll leave it a mystery. Yeah. Maybe we just won't tell you. Uh, Xander has represented and advised foreign governments, international corporate clients, and sovereign officials before U.S. courts, U.N. bodies, international commercial arbitration panels, investment treaty arbitration panels, the International Court of Justice, and has worked for prosecutors and judicial chambers in international criminal tribunals. She has also advised governments seeking to reform their international investment laws and policies and implement cybersecurity best practices. An avid SCOTUS, and that's Supreme Court of the United States uh, for you Luddites out there, watcher. She regularly briefs attorneys and our fellow Truman members on pending SCOTUS cases, civil rights-related legal matters, international human rights conflicts, and issues of constitutional law. And she is always one of my go-to people for any time I need a smart person, and particularly a smart person with a legal degree, to answer questions. Xander is professionally of counsel at MSK LLP a regular legal contributor to our good friends at the Secure Line podcast, an adjunct professor of international human rights law at Georgetown University Law Center, and a fellow of the Columbia Center for Sustainable Investment. And she still finds time to be a wonderful, fun person on top of all of that. Indeed. Uh, Xander's here today talking with us in her personal capacity. We want to emphasize uh, nothing she she says should be interpreted as legal advice or at all creating an attorney-client relationship. I I can't say enough how not her client you are just because you're listening to this podcast. You are not. Uh, This is not an attorney advertisement, and past performance is no guarantee of future performance. Which is now the tagline for taking ship as well. And a huge relief to us and all of our listeners, we're sure. (laughs) All right, uh, let's bring Xander on. Um, We can talk about uh, the Supreme Court from this past session, this coming session, but 
Uh, Xander, uh, why don't we bring you on and let's jump right into some of the kind of timely stuff that's going on and talk about the SF-86. Ah, yes. And lies, statistics, and what's the other thing? I don't ever remember. It was lies, damned lies, and statistics. There you go. I just, yeah, you'd think I remember that. Uh, Lies, statistics, what was the other (laughs) I don't know, maybe pizza. Leave me me alone. (laughs) Uh, Yes, yes, lies, truths, and and statistics. And pizza. Uh, So the reason this is in the news, obviously, is Don Jr., a.k.a. Fredo, um, apparently met with an attorney who has close relationships with the Kremlin. Uh, At first, he thought it was to break the Logan Act and talk about uh, the uh, uh, adoption um, uh, uh, ban that the Kremlin had put in and the sanctions that resulted from that. It then turned out that he actually met with her because he was told that she had damning information on Hillary Clinton and Russians supporting her campaign, but decided not to go to the FBI with that sort of information. He decided just to bring along good old Jared and Uncle Paul. Um, but all of this comes back to the SF-86, which is this unbelievably lengthy form that you have to fill out for national security clearance. It's like 180 pages. It asks for everything you've ever done and everybody you've ever spoken to in your entire life. And at the end of it, you have to sign it um, like you would anything saying you're telling the truth about something. And apparently all three of those people, um, or at least Jared and uh, Jared uh, left this meeting as he left many meetings off of his FS80, SF-86. Uh, we know that uh, Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor, left several meetings off of his SF-86, and those are just the ones that we know about at this point. So, Xander, can you kind of clarify what exactly it means when you fill out a government form and either purposefully or accidentally leave things off of it? Um, sure, although I'm going to talk about it in a little bit more of a general sense. Perfect. Uh, but when... So when you engage with the government and the government asks you a question, you are supposed to tell the truth. Um, I know that seems like a very simple thing to say, but they actually bother to ask you on some of these forms where you have to affirm or swear, uh, you know, that everything is accurate to the best of your knowledge. That's usually the phrasing that's used. Um, And in general, in courts uh, and before the law, you're going to tell the truth. If you accidentally make a mistake, then you may indeed... Um, you know, uh, have broken a rule, but that doesn't necessarily mean you've committed a crime. But if you intentionally lie, the big word intent, uh, and purposely say something that's not true, then you can get into a host of trouble. But it depends on the context, whether it's found to be perjury or violation of a particular uh, other federal law or statute. Uh, context always matters. Excellent. So, yeah. <laughs> so in here, the fact that the context is very muddled and confused um, is not helping <laughs> to clarify the situation. Right. Um, and as but, far as we you know, know, Fredo never would have filled out an SF-86 because he doesn't work in the administration. But Jared certainly did, and it's clear that there are many things missing from his, and he's already offered to amend it. So, so yeah, I mean, if you, to be clear, I've heard the word, for instance, perjury tossed around in some media outlets about this. Perjury is a very specific uh, knowingly making a false declaration to a court of law, grand jury, something like that. So an SF-86, uh, at least as under my general understanding of it, would not be perjury, but it can be against uh, the rules of, of how um, security clearances are done, federal regulations, uh, you know, the, the, um, necessi- the needing to provide true statements to the FBI, 
um, that kind of thing. But it's not necessarily perjury. Right, which but, is obviously a very important distinction. Yeah. Um, and then if, you know, so let's say uh, you do um, make a mistake or purposely try and um, persuade somebody um, that something didn't occur or, you know, the sort of lie of omission, um, it can get very messy um, in any context as to trying to prove that someone purposely did not say something. People have faulty memories. Uh, People remember things differently than the way they occurred, even without any malicious in- intent. So that's why this intent piece becomes very important. Sure. If the Reagan administration taught us anything, it's that it's incredibly hard to remember who may or may not have uh, sold missiles to uh, you know the Iranians, say by way to fund death squads in Nicaragua. I mean, who, I mean, these are the kind of details that the human brain just has a very difficult time keeping hold of in the best of circumstances. Uh, so, excellent. This is all incredibly encouraging. Uh, but turning to the question of the, uh, let's talk a little bit about SCOTUS here. Uh, let's and and I think we want to dive in uh, to uh, the sort of pertinent case that's coming up, uh, or you know, is relevant right now, which is Carpenter versus the United States. Where are we with that? Okay, so um, very recently, the Supreme Court granted cert on that case, and granting cert means that the that the Supreme Court has said, okay, yes, we'll hear this one out. Um, and this is a case that involves whether the police need a warrant to obtain cell phone location data from service providers. So as you can imagine, right, you get your cell phone bill every month. It says the calls that were outgoing and incoming. And this is part of regular normal records of the telephone provider. Um, and in the magic bubbles of law, um, it's okay for law enforcement to ask telephone providers for information on who you called. Um, and that's fine. That's been the case since the 1970s. They can get that kind of information. But here in this case, they asked the provider to provide information about what cell towers were pinged off of on a certain person's phone, Mr. Carpenter. Um, Mr. Carpenter was in trouble for being involved in armed robberies of cell phones. Ha ha. Um, but <laughs> the, uh, the fact that he was stealing cell phones has nothing to do with the cell phones in this, in this case about procedure. Because the Fourth Amendment is the thing that gives you protections from unreasonable searches and seizures. It's the thing that makes law enforcement have to get a warrant in a lot of circumstances. But courts have decided that because certain regular records of telephone companies are provided to a third party, the telephone company, that it's okay for law enforcement to ask for those records if they just have um, you know, certain suspicion. They don't need as much uh, of a reason to ask for them as they would need a reason to get a warrant. And so here, they got those records. They were able to figure out, okay, over the course of, and it was over 120 days, um, so, you know, rather long time, they traced where this cell phone was pinging and were able to determine that he was in the general vicinity of quite a few um, of these uh, these robberies, and he was sentenced to 116 years in prison. Uh, but then his appeal had asked that the cell phone evidence should be thrown out because of the lack of warrant. So what the court's going to have to look at here is, you know, is this, are those records, those cell phone tower records, somehow different than your telephone records? Does it matter that you gave it to a third party, meaning the cell phone company? What should be protected and not? And if you're thinking, I don't commit armed robberies, I don't care if people know where I am on my phone, I let Uber decide where I am all the time, you know, what does that, so why don't, should I, why should this matter? Um, it does matter because this case won't just tell you about 
this particular circumstance. It's considering how much we use technology these days and how much information we give to those third parties, um, like all these app providers and things like that. You know, this case could have a really big impact on the privacy of our personal information um, going forward. At the front end, it seemed at it was sort of at, at minimum, if it if it ends in favor of the authorities who are uh, tracking uh, Carpenter uh, via the, the cell phone pings, you know, if it's if it's sort of interpreted that way, at minimum, it means that our movements uh, could be more easily accessed. I mean, that's you know, that's just the very very beginning of it. It seems like, but if nothing else, like it's one thing to say. Uh, you know, who you call over the line can be identified with a warrant. It's another thing to say, like, where you are going can be found without a warrant. That's actually, that, that strikes me as a significant escalation. Yeah, and this is, and that's, and that's exactly why, you know, this case is, is such a big deal. Um, and this all comes from something called the Stored Communications Act, um, uh, which has been around for quite a while. But, you know, courts are not known for, uh, having the best of understanding of modern technology and how basically all of our internet uh, and privacy laws come from, they all originated in laws that dictated things like mail, like an actual letter. So the thought was, okay, you send a letter in the mail and there's certain information on it, um, on the outside of the envelope. And so anybody who sees the letter could see that. So you know, that's not necessarily private, but what's inside the letter is private, right? So that's the content of the inside. So this is why certain information that's, to stretch the analogy, like on the outside of the envelope of your phone call, um, you know, <laughs> it's a lower, I'm serious, this is kind of, everything kind of comes from that. That's the originating rubric when they approach these things. So, um, you know, that's not necessarily private, but the content of your call is private. So you would need a warrant for what people actually say, but you don't need a warrant for necessarily the phone number that you call. So it's in that background that then you would come up with this this case here. So is there How will this the ability to send disdainful telegrams to my legion of enemies? <laughs> um, yes, I mean, oh, telegrams. I would love a telegram. I love snail mail. No one ever sends it. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, the content of your telegram. I'm not quite familiar with Telegram law, but that might be protected, whereas the destination routing would not be. So, Xander, can I ask one follow-up, and then we'll, we'll move sure. on to the next case. So, in terms of them using the movement that is tracked by the cell phone towers, how is that different than being tracked by the movement that's being picked up by uh, cameras posted throughout the city or cameras that you know catch somebody walking through a parking lot or something like that in terms of the timestamp that shows that they were there at that time, at that moment? So that's a really good question. And I don't have a specific answer for you, but I have an approach answer for you. So the game of, of cops and robbers, <laughs> the idea that there has to be some effort to track uh, an individual, um, some planning on how to... Uh, follow that individual, know where they're going to be, certain things like that, that's kind of part of the balance of your privacy, right? There has to be some effort to, to find you. Um, if you have the tracking of your cell phone from a tower, this means that in electronic uh, uh, sort of, what's what I'm looking for? Like, it would be very easy for law enforcement to track not just one person, but a lot of people en masse with very little manpower and effort. And it really would, it affects that balance between 
the public and law enforcement on you know how much data can be collected on each person and that kind of thing. When it comes to picking you up on, on cameras, if we really did have the facial recognition technology that you see on like NCIS and <laughs> on television where somehow magically like they have every camera ever and can find a person, um, you know, that'd be, it, it, that's not, my understanding is that's not the way things work now. I mean, it's, but these are questions that need to be asked and the implications on this case could affect that kind of data gathering and data analysis. Got it. Okay, so obviously very complex and will have uh, important repercussions for all kinds of good things. Um, yeah. Let's move on to another case that uh, caught Frank and I, uh, our, our, our eyes, and we use that as an intro to the case, uh, the Maytal or Matal versus Tam, uh, which is a free speech uh, thing related to a band that wants to be called The Slants, uh, and we yes. don't mean that in any way other than just repeating the name of the band. Um, yes, and the implications for Frank's other favorite thing, the NFL. <laughs> right. So in this case, this case is about something called the Lanham Act, um, or, which is the, the statute that governs trademarks, uh, service marks, unfair competition, um, those sorts of protected names, right? You see like the little TM next to something. So a band called the Slants would like to be called the Slants and, reg and applied for a trademark of the Slants. Uh, and it was turned down uh, because there's a provision that talks about disparagement, that you cannot uh, have disparaging trademarks. Um, and, you know, people who talk about this will say there's been a lot of confusion as to what that means, and it, the government wasn't necessarily always consistent with what that meant. Uh, and in this case, uh, they came down and said, you know what? Free speech. Free speech is free speech. And if there's one thing that we love in the United States, it would be free speech. And so here it's an expression uh, uh, to, you know, to decide to name your band The Slants. And in this context, you can't uh, prohibit people from trademarking things just because one group may think it's offensive or, and another group doesn't. It's very hard to draw the line, so we're not going to draw it. Um, and it's a really big deal for a lot of reasons, uh, most prominently because that Washington football team uh, has had problems with its trademarks because uh, it was decided that that name, the Redskins, was disparaging. And they have a case pending that's been on hold because of the Slants case. And now, I mean, it's highly unlikely that the Redskins won't win. Um, that's that. the first time. That is the only time this year. <laughs> Yes, yes, they'll have yeah. a winning record in something, but, um, but yeah. <laughs> well, one to know in appellate court, baby. Oh, and it's deceased. But, but can yeah. I just, can, I just, can I just interject here to say fuck Dan Snyder? The idea of him winning anything appalls me. <laughs> this is outrageous. This is the guy, is this who we fought and died for? Also, that word is just a stone-cold racial slur. Um, so, all right, forgive me, please, please carry on with your very reasonable analysis. I will continue <laughs> my, my, my contempt and fury. Yeah. So, so the government tried to say here that the uh, trademarks are, were government speech, and so it wasn't affecting the, the individual speech. But the Supreme Court would have none of that. So, this is about. It's really a. I mean, this is really a free speech case, and it's it's the idea that you know we may find something reprehensible, but people have a right to say it. Um, so. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that is obviously one to keep 
uh, our eyes on in terms of how it's interpreted and pushed through everything. Um, we want to yeah. move next to uh, the Muslim ban, which is uh, mm-hmm. obviously an incredibly important one um, that has been rushed through the courts at a speed you know, not seen since Gore versus Bush. Um, so uh, there was the first set of cases which the Supreme Court, will you, you, you'll be able to explain this, uh, offered some sort of partial resolution on or a temporary resolution on, and then there will be a longer ca- a longer series of rulings that come out in the fall when they actually hear the full case. Right. So um, this case, uh, you know, is it's really two cases: Trump versus Hawaii and Trump versus IRAP or International Refugee Assistance Project. And uh, those different groups, Hawaii and um, IRAP, challenge Muslim Ban 2.0, which was the um, pared down travel ban. Uh, that prohibited, um, well, that called for a 90-day extra period of review for foreign nationals from six countries that were predominantly Muslim and a 120-day period of extra review for refugees. Um, And, yeah, we're going to find out whether or not that ban is legal under the Establishment Clause um, and a host of, of legal arguments. So, but what happened now, why we saw action now is on a couple of fronts. Um, so the, the circuit courts, Fourth Circuit and Ninth Circuit, have said that the, the ban is unconstitutional in one way or the other, and so asked for an injunction. Now, injunction is when the court tells somebody to do something. So they said, okay, we're saying you cannot uh, enforce the ban while this case is pending. What the Supreme Court just did is said, okay, we're going to look at this at this case, consolidated these two cases now into one one set of hearings to talk about whether or not uh, this restriction is okay constitutionally. But while it's going on, because we know we're not going to hear this case until the fall, we um, are going to partially lift that injunction. So they're basically saying, instead of having this outright, no part of it can be applied, we will allow you to apply some parts of it. And the carve-out that they did was, they said, if a person from one of the countries on the list um, has a quote, bona fide relationship with a a person or entity in the United States that this ban could not apply to them. So, but then the question is, what does that mean? (laughs) You know, more fancy legal words without definition. Um, And so there's been a lot of talk of like, what kind of level of family member counts? And, you know, for instance, it was decided that, um, because then the executive gets to make that decision, you know, okay, well, your parents count and your sisters count, but not your sister-in-law, or you know, direct relatives up and down count, but not your cousins, or not aunts and nieces and nephews. Um, you know, be having a relationship by with an entity like a school, like you're going to attend a particular university, that can count. But if you haven't already had that relationship, you know, that may not count. Um, and so that is a little bit unclear and is still kind of being worked out. Um, but that's what's going to happen for the next few months until the court actually hears the merits of the case on whether this is a constitutional violation to even have um, this kind of ban. Um, and another part of it, uh, another question that the court raised when they said, okay, we'll hear this case is, oh, by the way, we also want you to tell us whether or not this issue is even moot. Because given the timelines of 90 days or 120 days, it may be by the, like, you know, the, if the executive decides, okay, we're actually going to look at this, 
uh, and investigate more because the, the time period was it was supposedly to do background checks and to, to investigate whether there's a national security reason to have these kinds of restrictions. If the executive decides after that period of time, okay, you know what, we don't need this restriction anymore, then the case will vanish and we and, and you know there's nothing for the Supreme Court to decide. But if they want to insist on it still being in place or that somehow it's not moot after that time frame, then yeah, we're going to have a uh, a big battle in the fall, probably the first week in, of the term, which is the first week in October. So uh, is one of the primary uh, arguments that the government is making um, that the court has traditionally given the executive wide latitude when it comes to national security, and the government is saying that these countries um, are falling under the ban for national security reasons? Yes, so that's part of the argument. Also, there is this idea that immigration matters more generally come under the purview of the executive and that the executive has great leeway in deciding who to let in to the country and not because that because of the fact that immigration um, and relations with foreign countries comes under the power of the executive. So a lot of the questions going on at the lower level courts were, okay, but is there an objective reason for... Uh, to have this kind of policy, or is this policy motivated by something that's not constitutional or that is not reasonably based? Um, for example, you know, the motivation of just keeping Muslims out as opposed to a more specific national security reason. Because by giving preferences to certain religions over others, then we get into the establishment clause um, or freedom from religion, as most people refer to it. Right. Yeah, so it's obviously complex and confusing, and is this one that'll be expected that Kennedy will be the difference, or do you think this will be something that'll be more substantially um, uh, out of, you know, it, it'll be, it won't be part, it won't be a partisan split, it'll be, you know, seven to two or something? I, I mean, of course, nowadays, poor Kennedy, always, everyone always says, oh, he's in the middle, always see the vote, always see the vote. I think on something like this, it might not be 5-4. It might be, you're right, more like 6-3 or 7-2. Because it would, this is the kind of issue that is of such extreme public importance and has um, such a uh, potentially big impact on how people view the courts and whether, you know, courts, for instance, uh, people complain about courts making law themselves or, you know, being activist courts or something like that. On an issue of this kind of public importance, I can see the court coming up with a way to address the case that gets more consensus than just 5-4. Um, just Chief Justice Roberts is really big on getting as much consensus as possible. Under his lead as, as Chief Justice, there have been a tremendous number of cases that um, have come out unanimous or come out 7-2. You know, there's been a lot more consensus than you um, may have seen in other courts in the past. And I can see him trying to come up, uh, or the court in general, trying to come up with some kind of answer to this question that gets the most people on board to try and increase the, the strength and legitimacy, perceived, I should say, perceived legitimacy of the ruling. While at the same time cutting some kind of really narrow needle between not bumping into national security grounds while still upholding the Constitution. Oh, yeah. Like, I think the court would be very pleased if somehow they can say, you know what, this is moot, and therefore we don't have to deal with it <laughs> because the 90 days are over. Right. <laughs> if they can figure out a way not to touch it, I think that they uh, they would be pleased and have a sigh of relief. Um, but, yeah, no, when it, it, when it comes to, to needle threading, 
um, you know, you see this quite a bit. So another case, which uh, I think we were going to talk about today, but I, if you don't mind, I may preview it. Uh, so the case of Trinity Lutheran, which involves um, whether or not a religious school could get money to refurbish parts of its playground. Um, that case, um, you ended up seeing Justice Breyer uh, side with judges, including Judge Ro- uh, Justice Roberts, um, and some of the folks on the right side of the court that you don't necessarily always see Breyer li- aligning with. Um, but this happens because they say, okay, you know what? It's okay for this school to get this money. Um, but we're going to put this footnote in here where we're saying that this ruling only applies to the specific set of factual circumstances. And that's how you get consensus. You figure out the smallest way to make your decision to be able to pull the most people in. Speaking oh, so on, on the subject of free speech uh, and uh, the First Amendment, uh, I want to introduce something that's incredibly important to the American identity uh, and and to particularly to modern American life, and and that is of course cake. Uh, can, this yeah, this is this is probably for the next term. I understand, but uh, can you talk to us, please, Senator? Please be a guest on, t- on taking ship and talk to us about cake, and and or if you wish, those who sell cake. Um, if we're talking about flourless chocolate cake, this would be one of my favorite subjects. Uh, but <laughs> this is Excellent. about masterpiece cake shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Uh, so this is a case where when I saw the headlines, I you know was sitting there shaking my lawyer fist, being like, but no, this isn't what you say it is. So this is the case about a baker in Colorado who uh, did not want to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. And so I've seen headlines that say, you know, this is about somebody questioning marriage equality or this kind of thing. This is actually a case about the First Amendment. Uh, And again, this idea of freedom of expression, uh, freedom of expression in a speech sense uh, uh, by creating his artistic cake. And also the First Amendment protects, of course, establishment clause, uh, protects your right to have religious expression or rather, you know, to practice your religion. And so the baker here is saying two things. One, I'm an artist with my cakes. I make very fancy cakes. These cakes are expression. I should not have the content of my expression told to me. Just as I should have the freedom to express as I want, you should not tell me what content I have to have. And then also, he's saying, and my ability to express my religion, which does not believe in marriage equality, you know, means that you should not infringe, you should not force me to, to go against that um, part of my religion. So it's a two-pronged thing. But it's a First Amendment issue. It's not uh, uh, really directly about marriage equality, like some headlines have said. Right. So if like Entenmann's Bakery or something decided they were not going to sell cakes or cupcakes or donuts to gay couples, that would be specifically about um, marriage equality. Whereas this, because he's qualifying himself or presumably other people have also qualified him as an artist, it becomes an expression. Therefore, it's First Amendment. So actually, it's a little bit different than that. Okay. Right? So, so there are things... Um, out there like hotels, restaurants, places that are pseudo-public spaces. And that's where somebody cannot discriminate uh, based on um, race or certain other protected categories. Um, But sometimes when it comes to more personal relationship, it's not necessarily discrimination or it's not necessarily about this idea of marriage equality. Like, you know, the question as to whether there's a fundamental right to marriage, whether it's 
marrying someone of the same gender or someone of a different gender, that kind of marriage equality does not have to do with cupcakes. Um, although, you know, as much as we love eating the cupcakes to celebrate said marriages. Um, so, you know, if Antimans did that, they'd have a PR nightmare, I imagine, uh, based on the emotional uh, and personal nature of this issue and how, um, you know, many people would uh, would take issue with that and probably call boycott them. Um, there seems to be a boycott every minute these days of different companies for different reasons. But, like, if a state entity wanted to uh, have cake and the state said, but we will only give cake to heterosexual couples, then that becomes an issue. Um, when you have, um, you know, state or government entities involved in that kind of decision. Um, so that's also part of the reason why this isn't really marriage equality here. You have a particular person. Is a bakery a restaurant? Is a bakery, you know, the Montgomery lunch counter? This is like, you know, these kinds of, it gets a little messy as to what level of service different service providers have to provide. It's the scale um, of it, isn't it? Because if a if a grocery store, done the sort of taking the Intimates thing, if a grocery right. store chain decided they weren't going to sell Intimates cakes or any other cakes to uh, to gay couples or gay people, um, that would clearly, that would it seems to be prima facie be discriminatory. And because it's on this sort of, it's because it's on this massive scale, like these are the, these are part of those like semi-public spaces, right? It's yeah. the, the tiny nature of the single of the single bakery. How good are this guy's cakes if he's able to go around claiming their works of art? <laughs> this is going to require significant research. Uh, I don't necessarily want to eat his cakes, but I'm going to eat a large amount of cake in order to come to yeah. the view on the subject. I, I have a you can birthday say you're cake having in the a fridge wedding. right now. <laughs> so so it, it gets down to so you can be discriminatory and it not be illegal. It depends who's doing it and in what context, right? Mm. So, uh, you know, for instance, you, you have a lot of flexibility when you're going to share an apartment with somebody as to what type of roommate you can have, right? So, like, you can, as like a woman can decide she only wants a female roommate and put in her advertisement, I only want a female roommate. But if a housing uh, provider says, okay, we have this great new housing place, uh, you know, here, it's here in D.C. It overlooks Snacks Park. We're going to charge you a fortune for it because of a pool on the roof. Um, but we're only going to rent to women. Like, <laughs> that's a different story. So it really depends on the context and what kind of, um, you know, goods or property or other serv or services that you're providing. Um, but here, it's not about that. It's about whether this guy, that's why they're trying to pull it into the free speech thing and make it about this individual. Does this individual have a protected right to express himself or not express himself in certain ways, and then a personal right to um, the exercise of his religion, uh, or you know, to, to then not do something. It's it's a different it's a different thing. However, you're right to see ahead because like what happens to this one guy is absolutely going to be used for cases involving greater groups. Yeah. Right, which will then flood the courts with. You know, every photographer or cake baker or anything else that wants that chooses to do something based on free speech, it'll end up in a court and it, it'll, it'll become a thing. Yeah. So uh, one thing that has been making a little bit of buzz uh, in the last um, two weeks or so since the end of the term, at the end of the term, there was a case, uh, I don't know if it's Pavin or Pavin versus Smith, um, which the court decided um, 
uh, per curiam, which is when they all um, sort of where most of the justices sign on. It's like usually a pretty rote opinion. Um, and that case was about whether uh, a same-sex partner should be listed on a birth certificate because Arkansas had said that only heterosexual couples have the father listed. Um, but when it came to a same-sex couple, so to women, they, they didn't want to put the other mother on the birth certificate. Um, and the court said, nope, sorry, marriage equality, we've been there, done that. If we're saying everyone gets to get married, this is one of those things that comes with getting married. And so you have to put the other uh, spouse on, even if they're the non-birth parent. And Gorsuch wrote, um, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he wrote a statement saying that's not the case. This isn't necessarily settled in this context. There was a lot of hair splitting um, but his point was, this is more complicated than you're making it seem. There may be questions here. And so there's been some speculation in the last few weeks that this would indicate that, you know, he either doesn't think that marriage equality is settled or at least thinks that there may be openings where even if it's settled in one context, there are a lot of places where it's still not settled. So for instance, you know, if there's a way to make it so you don't have to make a cake for uh, a same-sex couple... Uh, you know, maybe that uh, that might be a context or other other contexts as well. So it makes this case particularly one to watch for the what would Gorsuch do? Because, uh, of course, since he's the new guy on the block, everyone's watching his every move. Did he when he was in Colorado, was he involved with this earlier on? Um, not that I know of. OK, because he would would he have to recuse himself if he had been? Yes. OK. Yes. And that's where you sometimes get some interesting um, outcomes and cases. So right now we've had eight justices for most of this term, which is why it was a bit of a snooze fest, um, because they because they get to choose what cases they pick. And so, you know, some cases they knew that they, you know, it was either going to be 4-4 or it just it was an issue where they wanted the full, a full nine, a full bench, so they didn't take them. But um, you will sometimes still see, even when you have nine justices, uh, decisions that are uh, six, two, or, you know, with eight or even sometimes seven. And, um, it's because someone has to recuse. So Kagan, for instance, because before she was on the bench, she was, uh, with the solicitor general's office. There were a lot of cases early in her tenure that she had to recuse from because she had worked on them in another context. And in terms of just, you know, the process and all that, it, it, uh, the Supreme court with only eight justices, it doesn't change the precedent that's set, right? Like just because something was decided without a full court doesn't mean that it's any less decisive than any other one, right? Correct. However, if the court ends up uh, four, four, um, they, it means that you essentially are not making a decision and whatever the court of appeals had held before it came to SCOTUS is what stays, remains. So, but if you had, in theory, if you had multiple justices recused and you ended up with a decision you know, 4-2 or something like that, that's fine, as long as, um, you know, you have a majority of those who are on the bench coming it, out with the decision. If it reverts to the appellate court's decision, does that mean it can, they can, the Supreme Court could theoretically end up with the case again? Yes, okay. and that does happen. Okay, got it. Um, well, except it won't get it again in the same uh, in the same form, right? So, like, the same issue can end up being presented again, but it probably wouldn't be this, you don't, don't end up with necessarily the same case because you only get kind of one shot at the apple. So you can ask certain questions on the way up, um, and then if those don't get resolved, they go back down, and then they can come back, keep coming back up for additional questions. 
but you only really get presented with a question twice. There have been a couple of cases this term that the Supreme Court decided to push to next term. Uh, and that's a way for them to say, okay, we want nine justices to hear this. So we're not sending it back down because that would require us to actually make a decision. We're going to hold on the decision, bump it to next term, in, in at least one case, have some more briefing on discussing additional matters, additional oral argument, and then we'll decide. And then I, I think it, the thought is, okay, if we have a full nine, we can actually come to a decision as opposed to splitting. Got it. Okay, well, you know, keeping with kind of where we are in terms of a split court, uh, the last thing we want to talk about for next term is uh, redistricting, which is a case coming out of Wisconsin. And just so that people understand kind of how breathtaking the uh, partisan gerrymandering in this country is. Uh, the statistic that was in an op-ed in the New York Times on Friday was the, uh, this has to do with gerrymandering. The resulting lockdown of the House is breathtaking. Last year, 98% of House incumbents were re-elected, and 402 of 435 races were won by more than 10, 10%, which is uh, wildly astounding. Uh, which is also why this case is so important. So, Xander, can you walk us through this case, but also kind of some of the stuff that, how, how it relates to North Carolina, and then there's another case in Texas? Am I making that up? Um, yeah, no, you're not. So we'll talk about uh, North Carolina and Wisconsin. So um, people think gerrymandering, and they get all like, ew. Like, it's, it has become an accepted, uh, some would say necessary evil, but... It's okay to gerrymander. That's not in question. It has been decided you're allowed to gerrymander based on party. And in some circumstances in the past, they've said, you know what, racial gerrymandering, gerrymandering based on race. So drawing your lines based in part on racial information and racial statistics is also okay so long as race is not the predominant factor in what you're doing. So... There was a North Carolina case this term, which is Cooper versus Harris, which addressed um, political gerrymandering with a racial component. So the question there was whether these two different districts in North Carolina, which were redrawn to include a greater percentage of non-white voters, uh, were constitutional. Um, and the, the law at issue was the Voting Rights Act. Uh, the Voting Rights Act says that, generally speaking, you, it prohibits state and local governments from imposing voting laws that result in discrimination against minorities on voting rights. So, um, you know, the argument had been, well, since it's very, very clear, or at least a court found it was very clear, that North Carolina drew these districts based on racial statistics that they should be found unconstitutional. Um, and the court... Majority of the court said yes, but, um, and the but is that they looked at these stats and um, saw the, you know this change in um, the voter percentages, and they noted the fact that in the past uh, representatives of color or representatives of the Democratic Party had won these districts before, and that therefore the racial groups involved. Um, were getting the representation they want in these districts, so there wasn't really a reason to redistrict them to try and give them more rights. Because North Carolina had said, well, we're doing this, we're considering race because Voting and Rights Act says that we should consider race uh, and protect race when we're doing these lines. So, so the court said in that instance, here, even though race was involved, it's, um, you know, here where the race was involved and there's very clear reasons to connect those pieces uh, to what the outcome was on 
redrawing these lines, there wasn't, you know, you can't have it as the predominant factor. These particular districts are out. Um, the Wisconsin case coming up is different. So whereas this North Carolina case looked at race and, you know, okay, sometimes, but not always, but maybe you can use race in drawing your lines, Wisconsin is about part partisan gerrymandering. And is there an instance where partisan gerrymandering is so skewed that that could be an interference on voting rights? Um, and that's a question that has the courts really haven't dealt with straight on. Um, and certainly the last time they dealt with it, which was, oh, 15 years ago or so, they avoided having to directly answer the question. Because again, the court loves to not answer a question if it doesn't have to. <laughs> so they're going to look at whether um, the that those districts in, in Wisconsin, which were based on party, um, could actually be a constitutional violation. So when they look at these things, trying to base it off of a one group is saying it's based off of race. The other group is saying it's based off of the politics involved. They're looking at voter rolls and they're looking at voting percentages and looking, you know, the African-American community votes, you know, 80% with the Democratic Party, whatever it might be. So what, where does it fall out where the court can say, yeah, this one's illegal. It's okay over there, though. <laughs> I mean, if we had a very clear formula and answer to that question then we wouldn't keep having right. all these fights. <laughs> right. But, I mean, but here... Um, but like it, it, I mean, it, it partially it's an intent thing because, you know, we can, I think even Republicans would look at what Tom DeLay did in Texas and be like, yeah, that dude is trying to get a Republican majority. Yeah, yeah. Well, here in North Carolina, you had some super clear evidence that they considered race and considered it a lot in drawing these lines. Um, you know, they were, uh, people had said things on the, on the floor of the legislature or in committee meetings that specifically said how they were looking at race. They also, um, did things like not only increase the percentage of part of how they increased the percentage in one of the districts of, of voters, uh, non-white voters was to purposely decrease the, the aggregate number of white voters in that district. So, you know, as it's one of those situations where, well, we may not know where to draw the line. We know that these particular circumstances crossed it because it was so clear. And the lower court even used the words surgical precision, that these districts were drawn with surgical precision to try and bring more African-Americans into the voting district um, and keep them out of neighboring ones. So. And the challenge with Wisconsin, it seemed, with the, the Wisconsin case is, while it might be possible well, I mean, well, it certainly seems very clear that the districts have been redrawn to create a concentrate to create high concentrations of Democratic voters. So you get a few fewer number overall. You have a few very Democratic districts, and then a lot more uh, swing in Republican districts was the was the end result. Um, it, it's it's perverse, but it's not entirely. It sounds like I mean, it's sort of a general consensus that it's perverse, but it's not entirely clear it's unconstitutional. Yeah. So here's where the nerds win. So, <laughs> excellent. So, Good. Oh, thank God for that. I've been waiting for this moment. I mean, this is like like nerd heyday. This case, part of how it even exists, the one in Wisconsin, is because of stats nerds. So, some academics just figured out how to to study mathematically um, the you know okay, given the population of this state and given the population of these particular areas, how could you draw lines that would 
you know, not factor party into account or not factor race or whatever. They used they came up with algorithms to actually try and demonstrate objectively this is what a district would look like that work that would be constitutional. And that is part of what spurred this case in Wisconsin. And so it's really interesting, right? Because when you think about cases about party, you know, well, is party gerrymandering, how do you figure out if it's too partisan? Do you do it based on voter rolls, as you had said, or something like this? You know, it gets kind of fuzzy because a lot of people are registered one party but vote another. How do you really tell? When it comes to racial gerrymandering, there's been more cases about that because there's something people can point to. There are X number of non-white voters in this district. It's like a thing that they, a stat they can point to. Well, it's harder to do that when you just are looking at party until the math geeks come in and have the fancy algorithms. Uh, and so it's really interesting how that's going to play out. This, this idea that these data sets, you know, are they really objective? How do you come up with algorithms? You know, is, is, can we that really be trusted to identify what is constitutional or non-constitutional? Um, so, yeah, the stats nerds are having their heyday. Right, Excellent. Let's, let's saved, by, saved by analytics exactly as the founders intended. Yeah, let's hope <laughs> they don't use the Clinton analytics. Uh, and so, pre- yeah. preser- preserved, yes, preserved as we are uh, by algorithms, we turn now to a much easier number to deal with, which is uh, four. We have four questions that we are going to ask you now, Xander, to, uh, to round out uh, the interview. Yeah, these are super fast, you know, first thing that comes to mind. So the first question is, what's the, and you can answer one for each or just one, uh, what's the best book, TV show, movie you've read or seen lately? So I could say something serious like Handmaid's Tale, which was appointment viewing for me or something like that, but We know you're a fan of The Rock, it's okay. And Oh, dude, I'm an absolute fan of The Rock, I will admit it. Uh, I kind of enjoyed the Baywatch movie, but... um, (laughs) So a show, a show I've been watching uh, that I really like and is very escapist is called The Magicians on hmm. Sci-Fi. It's like Harry Potter for adults, and it has nothing to do with my day job, and I love that about it. I feel like somebody else said the same thing, didn't they, Frank? Somebody else just... I don't think I've had The Magicians recommended, but it comes on before The Expanse, uh, which I was watching with some regularity. So I have seen the last 30 seconds of, much of, <laughs> of most of the episodes, and well, it, the- it seems fine to me. Well, then you're probably traumatized, given what the last 30 seconds of each episode tends to do. But yes, so yeah. that's so that bad monster Listen, movie. I don't understand what's happening, but it's harrowing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and that's how I things. feel about life most of the time. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, what's next? Hit me. Favorite drink, alcoholic or not? Uh, raspberry harpoon hefeweizen. Not Jesus, so easy to find specific. in the DC area, but I love it. All right. Um, the third question. This one's slightly more serious. Uh, in the Trump era, we've seen and we know that lots of people are interested in doing something. What's one organization you're supporting and why? Uh, well, a lot of people I know on your podcast have already mentioned No One Left Behind, so I won't. Uh, but I'm going to mention two things. Get a subscription to your local newspaper. I mean it. It's one of the best things that you can do. Um, to get good news uh, and get news about where you live and what's going on and local politics and that kind of thing. You know, those city council meetings don't cover themselves. And uh, occasionally that reporter needs a cup of coffee and perhaps a salary and maybe some health insurance. So um, buying a subscription to your local newspaper is a great thing to do. If you're looking for an organization, I'd recommend the Tahiri Justice Center. They have a few locations around the country. The organization helps women um, with assorted legal issues, 
Um, I've worked with them on some pro bono cases for asylum seekers um, who had been political activists in the Middle East seeking asylum in the United States. Um, but they do a lot of good work on resettlement, domestic violence issues, immigration issues related to asylum for women, um, and that kind of thing, and a support network. So I'd recommend them. Excellent. And Zender, for those who wish to hear your further thoughts, uh, where can people find and follow you? If so I, I, I am new to the tweets, but I am I'm now on the tweets. So my Twitter handle is have law will travel, spelled H V Law Will Travel. Excellent. Terrific. Yes. And the interwebs will of course find find me in a Google search for my email address and other assorted things. So I'm unfortunately easy to track down. There are not many Xander international lawyers around. That is in retrospect, something that we probably should have seen coming. Terrific. Have, 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 she tweets that have law will travel. Okay. Uh, so uh, thank you, Xander, for joining us to repeat uh, what we said up front. Uh, we want to make sure that we are uh, dotting our legal eyes, crossing our legal T's. We want to be very clear that Xander joined us here today uh, talking with us in her personal capacity. Nothing she says should be interpreted as legal advice or creating an attorney-client relationship. This is not an attorney advertisement, and past performance is no guarantee of future performance. However, those of you podcast listeners, you are now you now represent Ellie and me in court. Congratulations. <laughs> very soon. We have a large number of extremely difficult things we want to put to you. Meanwhile, Andrew, you're off the hook. Thank you uh-huh. for being with us. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you guys. Andrew. Thank you guys so much uh, for having me here. You know, if there's one thing that I just won't shut up about, it's about talking about the Supreme Court. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. That is our show for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Xander, thank you again for joining us. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in Pecorino. Uh, Be sure to check us out again later this week if you don't subscribe to get our latest episode. And uh, as always, thanks for listening.